The difficulty is that there's a diverse in the uh, diversity in the private sector of personalities and life experiences from people. And I think Dave could attest to this, that you have to adjust how you deal with civilian folks so that you don't come off like you're yelling at a bunch of soldiers all over again. Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Workforce Podcast, where we explore the business and profession of emergency medicine. I'm Leon Edelman, an emergency physician from North Carolina. Practicing EM is full of challenges, but sure is an awesome way to make a living. Today, we explore the stories of two military veterans, Dave Driscoll and Omar Nava who are now community emergency medicine physician assistants and practice leaders. We learn from their personal experiences and hear their inspiring stories. The discussion also digs into the history of the PA movement and how intertwined it is with the US military. For Dave, being a PA is his third career. He was a police officer out of college, then joined the National Guard, and then became a helicopter pilot in the military. Right as the war had broke out, part of the mission for any aviation was doing your own extraction. So you get the opportunity pretty quick to see a bunch of injured individuals. You're flying around looking in the back and you're like, wow, what are these guys doing back there? This is amazing. And then you also get to see, you know, hey, and and I'd been to Iraq twice, Afghanistan as a pilot. And in those, you, you just see a bunch of different things in the back of the aircraft happen. And you're like, wow, this is crazy. And so I started talking with some of them back there, and you, you recognize that these guys that called themselves PAs were, were actually back there doing some real good um, to save people's lives. I'm like, wow, maybe I need to be back there. And for Omar Nava, he was a tanker in the Army, where a training exercise made him realize that becoming a PA might be a better option. We had to prepare one time for a live fire exercise, and we had to watch a, a bunch of a video on live fire, and we saw what the Pershing missile could do to an M1 Abrams tank. And I kind of had an awakening as Dave did and said, well, I may not be able to be a tanker for very longer. So I, I said, let me go be a combat medic. And I remember going through school and being a combat medic, and the guest speaker was, I think, a Major Daigle, female Daigle, who ended up being a very prominent leader in the entire Army for PAs, but at that time she was our guest speaker at her graduation. And I remember being really happy and proud. I was a distinguished honor graduate of the combat medic school, and she pulled me aside and and asked would would I ever uh, consider going to to PA school. I thought, well, well, that was cool. While they both knew what they wanted to do in their new careers, their transitions weren't easy. Well, mine was kind of um, introduced with the the second school I went to. I started that EMPA program, and so up in Seattle. So they essentially just assign you to a resident, and you you follow that resident for a couple of years. And so he's an ER resident, and so we were at a civilian hospital for a big portion of that, Tacoma General and Harborview. And and so that was my first real introduction to um, emergency medicine outside the military was a county hospital in Seattle, you know, a homeless population full of uh, – of heroin users and plenty of old sick people and uh, at, a, at a training institution. So that was my first chance to really meet and see some some sick people that weren't soldiers and weren't, you know, trauma and a bunch of broken bones and 
and guys coming in you know, wasted after the weekend. And what what surprised you about that that transition? I could I could imagine that there would be some culture. I don't know about shock, but culture change. I I would say um, I think the thing that shocked me most was how little I knew. It was just a a big blur of holy cow. There is a lot of pathology in the world that some of which and some of it maybe I'd heard about, but. I had never actually faced it um, until you, you you're looking at the patient in the eye and you're like, huh, this you don't look right. And Omar, I'm I'm curious about your your transition from the military back to civilian PA life. What what was that like? Yeah, so essentially for two years, I think Dave alluded this to this. For two years, I was taking of care of over ninety eight percent soldiers who, as everybody knows, they're inherently screened for the worst health problems coming in. So I'm already inherently taking care of, of, of a good population of, of healthy people. So it's going to be a lot of diseases and medical conditions that you don't see, and you don't see young sick babies, and you don't see uh, sick old people. And as my time was drawing near, and I knew that I was going to be coming home, I'd already decided I was coming to Tennessee, and I was going to be back in emergency medicine, to be honest with you, I, I developed quite a bit of an anxiety, and I'm not an anxious anxious guy. And I remember asking my wife to send me a hand copy of Tintinelli's so that I could just regurgitate it over and over again. Then on uh, my off time, we were in the field 28 days out of a 30-day month. So you had two days to regenerate your supply, do something for yourself, and then go back. Well, I volunteered to go to uh, the pediatric ward and the OB ward to do procedures, to do mm. uh, LPs on, on neonates and to do anything I could as my time was coming closer to coming home because I just felt like I had missed out two years worth of a lot of pathology. So there's quite a bit of anxiety. I believe it. And my my understanding is that you were, uh, I don't know about thrust, but but placed in position of leadership pretty quickly after after that. How would you say your military background helped you adjust to to being a leader in the emergency department? So as a whole, it felt the experience was that it was easier in some respects and challenging in others. Easier in that the past two years I'd, I'd spent being the only medical personnel for an entire battalion and a second battalion. And normally that would require a total of four medical providers, two physicians and two PAs, but it was just me. Um, uh, secondly, I was in, in charge of leading uh, platoons of, of medics. So when I transitioned into the private sector, in that respect, it was easier. I had just spent two years leading folks in arduous circumstances limited logistics, uh, very short turnover of deadlines. The difficulty is that there's a diverse in the uh, a diversity in the private sector of personalities and life experiences from people. And I think Dave could attest to this, that you have to adjust how you deal with civilian folks so that you don't come off like you're yelling at a bunch of soldiers all over again and just having them expect, uh, expecting them to do what you say just because you say it. Yeah, Dave, I'm, I'm curious to get your, your perspective on this. I guess you can break it down into of things that you learned from the military that, that helped you become a, a good leader and then things that you had to unlearn 
from spending so much time in the military? Uh, well, I, I'll be honest with you. Being a good leader is uh, not something I think about myself. I've met a bunch of good leaders, um, Omar being one. I, I will tell you that my time in the military was a little unique. Um, when I first went into aviation, it was uh, it was a boys club. You know, we were we were all men. Every, everybody in my class was a guy. My first couple units were all all guys, and then the units that I ended up transitioning to were were again all guys. So I didn't have to deal with female personalities and those kind of issues too. And so that kind of alleviated it. And and I'd be honest, it was kind of a boys club, and and we kind of self selected, and then they were self selected again. So some of the people that that I was in charge of and and around were were already pretty grown up and could take some criticism. And so transitioning to the civilian world is a big step coming from where I came uh, in terms of being able to pull back on what I say and how I say it and learning how to kind of frame things as a team and we're all in this together kind of thing versus, you know, hey, you're an idiot. What were you thinking? You know, it it is definitely um, something that I had to learn. And thank goodness, I tell people all the time, I, I stood on the, the shoulders of some giants. I was around some really good people growing up. And then I had some good people to help me before I transitioned. Being around Omar was great. I was around a guy named Ken Hyde for a while. If you've seen that uh, movie with the soldier and the they're riding horseback in Afghanistan, he was the medic actually in that, but he went on to become a PA. Great guy but had a lot of leadership skills. And I, I, some people say, well, maybe he picked those up in the military. I think he probably had them a lot like Omar and just got put in the right position. I, I'm not so sure that leaders are grown. Sometimes I think um, leadership is just some people inherently have it. Um, and he was the same way, able just to lead a bunch of group of people. And in, in the civilian world is where I ran into him up in Seattle. And I was just amazed at how this PA could talk to both guys and women and bring everybody together to kind of do the same thing and to get everybody focused on the right thing. And so those are all things that I've been trying to become a better leader with, because I'll be honest, uh, I don't think I was born with the same skills that some people have. I've had to really sit back and say, oh, I need to watch what I'm saying here, because this is this is probably not the right thing. Got it. Both of you guys have a reputation for being good teachers, and that is a little bit of a different skill set than than just leadership. How do you feel like the military prepared you to be to be a teacher of of young PAs and nurse practitioners in the ER? So uh, one thing that I think that we get in the in the military is things move rather quickly. So sometimes you have to teach a skill set very quickly. So you have to learn to get to the point and filter out a lot of the fluff. Secondly, sometimes, you know, you have to learn to find a way to squeeze out the best assets and the talents and the skill set out of every individual, though they may be different among individuals. You have to find a way to tease out what you need out of them, to train them to do whatever it is you, you, you want to do. So the military, the Army, is always in a cycle of constantly learning something, you know, we, we, we have a motto, see one, do one, teach one. So you, you see something done, you do it, you teach it, and, and then you move on. So we're constantly uh, in that cycle. Dave? Yeah, and then that is definitely something the military is good at is 
getting people to be able to pass on to the next person is, you know, you're next in line. When that person goes down, you step up and you're going to take that in it. And I think that's a, a big portion of it. But every job you do, even I'm sure when he was a tanker, me as a pilot, when you when you take a junior pilot and you show them around, you're instantly thrust into that teaching position. I'm trying to teach somebody something new. And, and technology in the military is constantly changing, especially during the war. And so as you learn it, you're expected to be able to teach everybody in the unit, hey, this brand new piece of equipment. And so I think that is just kind of thrust upon you. And then you just carry that with you. So transition into the civilian world, it was kind of easy to just say, hey, I, I'm, I'm going to teach you what I know. If you can teach me what you know, and, and we'll work together on this. That's great. So I want to change topics a little bit to the history of the PA movement and the emergency medicine PA movement, because the military had a, a big impact on the creation of the first PA programs. The early leaders of the PA movement were largely from the military. So I want to hear a little bit more of your stories and recollections um, from what you've learned about the history of the military and veterans and the PA movement. So Dave, can you tell us a little bit more about the Duke program and and how that got started and what the connection is to the military? Well, I wish I knew more about it. Um, I only know, you know, kind of what they tell you when I went through school. So it's been a hot minute, but uh, essentially they took some guys that um, had some military background, had some medical background, and they used some docs to kind of teach them a lot of procedures, a lot of things that they could do to help the docs out essentially. And, um, you know, being physician driven, there needed a bunch of extra guys that could do something that had some additional training and, and the the PA program was essentially the way to do that. Omar, can you tell us a little bit more about what you've learned about those initial programs? Sure. So I appreciate that you mentioned uh, Duke, but a nerdy factoid is before Duke, uh, there was Dr. Uh, Charles Hudson. In 1961, he published uh, an article in, in, in the Journal of American uh, Medicine titled The Expansion of the Medical Professional Services with Non-Professional Personnel. So he first saw the need of how do we expand the footprint of a primary care doctor to areas, especially underserved areas, rural areas where we, where we can't get physicians to go. We don't have enough of them. So in 1965, then uh, Dr. Eugene uh, Stead, you know, gets this idea uh, at Duke University to start the first PA program, and he uses four uh, Navy corpsmen. And he, he realizes that these guys have this skill set that is expected of them as a standard in the Navy, but when you translate that into the private sector, there's no structure to appreciate or to value those skills. Certainly there isn't a regulatory agency for former Navy corpsmen, that didn't exist. So they just didn't fall into a category. Are you a medic? Are you a paramedic? Are you a nurse? What what are you? So he finally gets this idea and says, they've got these skill set. We have a need in primary care. Let's train them up. Uh, let's pair them up with some physicians and let's have them do a prescribed uh, set of tasks and duties. At the same time he's doing this, Dr. Richard Smith in the University of Washington, he designs the medics program and he does use four former uh, military uh, combat medics. And he essentially essentially does the same thing there. And uh, tell us a little bit more about this kind of heroic figure, uh, Stephen Turnipseed. <laughs> 
Oh yeah, he he's he's a, a great example. So Stephen Turnipseed is a Vietnam combat medic. He's a veteran. He's decorated multiple times for distinguished uh, service there. He served with special forces there, and he gets identified by Dr. Richard Smith at uh, University of Washington when he's designing his medics program. You know the the PA program of the West Coast, and he identifies him and says this guy is a great example. And he's African-American, and he becomes one of the first of the four graduates of the, of the medics uh, program. But he doesn't stop there. He helps to develop the standards for testing uh, as a national board certification. Uh, testing comes online. When, when the two PA programs were developed, there really wasn't a, a national uh, board certification, so he helps to do that. He becomes one of the founding members of the American Academy of PAs. He's one of the founding members of the minority chapter of doing this. He goes on to help other programs uh, establish their PA programs in Alabama and Southern California, uh, Charles Drew University uh, PA program in Southern California. If he didn't do enough uh, service to his country as a combat medic, you know, he goes on to be a pioneer in the first, uh, one of the two first PA programs and he continues his advocacy, constantly being a member of the first club, the first to do this, the first to do that. Yeah, one of the funny stories that, that I've heard about him was, so he comes back from Vietnam. He's this you know, decorated uh, special forces combat medic and isn't really sure you know, what kind of job he's going to get. How, do, how does he translate this into civilian life? So he ends up as a assistant to the physician at the prison in Leavenworth, Kansas, like one of the biggest prisons in the country. And his friends are like, this is crazy. Like you're going to be taking care of, of like hundreds, maybe thousands of people in a prison. Do you know, do you know how to do this? He's like, I don't know. I could figure, I've been able to figure out how to take care of people in Vietnam. I'm pretty sure I could figure this out. So I thought he was crazy to do that job because basically like he was alone. There's like some doctor somewhere, but you know, it's a big prison and he had to do everything. He did surgery. He did primary care. He did acute care. He did everything. And then he gets recruited to this, this MedEx program at the University of Washington and the people at Leavenworth, after he had kind of set up a, a, a really well-functioning medical system there, were like, you can't do that. You're crazy. There's, <laughs> there's no structure. There's no degree. There's no nothing. This guy just wants you to come over there and, and figure it out. He's like, well, I've figured out Vietnam. I figured out, <laughs> I figured out things here at Leavenworth. And he was one of the founders of the PA movement. Really inspirational. Yeah, the, the the concern of his friends, you're right, when uh, he was thinking about doing this medics program is they said, well, what are you going to do when you finish it? As you mentioned, there's no regulatory agency. Who's yeah. going to acknowledge what you've done? Uh, you're going to lose your good job here at the prison. You've got a pension. Yeah. It's, a, it's a steady paycheck. What are you going to do with this? And one of the other pioneering things he does is he, he gets acknowledgement from the first HMO in, in California to acknowledge the services of a PA. So like you said, he figured it out in Vietnam. He figured it out at the prison job. He figures it out at medics. And then he finds a way to get one of the biggest HMOs to say, we acknowledge you're this thing called a PA and we're going to reimburse for your services. 
Let's take a break to tell you about our sponsor, Ivy Clinicians. Full disclosure here, I'm Ivy's founder. Both as a practicing physician and ED medical director, navigating the job market felt like going back to the days of classifieds and smoke-filled rooms. Who staffs which ED? I don't know. Who should I contact there? I don't know. What's it like to work there? You get the point. So our team at Ivy created the Zillow of the emergency medicine job market. With Ivy, you can find all 5,549 EDs in the United States, filter them by your preferences, and connect with the right employers, all for free. Your data is secure with Ivy. You pick which employers can see your profile. Sign up now at ivyclinicians.io. When Ivy connects you with your next emergency medicine job, we will even send you a bottle of champagne and a bag of 321 coffee beans to celebrate. That's ivyclinicians.io. All right, back to the show. Got it. So let's let's take the kind of the that was in the mid 60s. Let's take the the bigger picture more recently. What would you say has been the impact on the PA workforce of veterans and PAs with ties to the military? So a, a quick catapulting then from the 70s to the 90s, uh, uh, early 70s, 71, the Army and the Air Force and the Navy start their own independent respective PA programs. You see an uptick uh, in the 80s. You know, Army PAs were providing w- almost 80 percent of all primary care to patients in the Army system. Uh, 80% is quite a bit, and they were doing that at half the cost, so the, the Army loved this. So then you get into 1991 uh, during Operation Desert Storm and Desert Shield, and now the Army really sees this value of catapulting a bunch of healthcare providers when they needed them at the drop of the hat. Then in 1996 is where the inner service PA program that, that David attended gets established, and, and that's the Air Force and the Army coming together and saying, we're going to have this joint program where we're just going to teach everybody together. And then pushing that forward, you see the Afghanistan war, the Iraqi war also uh, put front and center the value of having these lesser cost uh, medical assets provide care. And then that brings us into the current state of affairs in uh, primary care in the private sector and the current state of affairs of emergency medicine in the private sector. And Dave, you're you're also of an academic post as as well. What's your sense of how the kind of the military tie-in with the PA movement makes PA education different from say the nurse practitioner education? Well, I can't speak too much about nurse practitioner education. I just don't know much about it. it theirs yeah. is a lot different than ours. Ours is um, at least uh, now working both at Lipscomb, I teach a little bit at South, and then you know being directly involved with the IPAT program. I was a phase two coordinator for a bit. Um, you know they follow more of a rigorous kind of standard. They use the uh, kind of med school. We're going to follow these specific things. You hit these specific topics, and then you have to do X number of rotations at the end. Although I, I, PA school keeps getting longer and longer, which is kind of a little concerning, especially now with med school getting shorter. But I, I think it's um, you know a very particular kind of thing. Now I'm not 
sold that it needs to be, it's very family practice oriented. I think PA school needs to have more components that are specific to what somebody wants to do. But I, I get in that, you know, you start doing that, then you have one PA school that fosters on pediatrics and another that's emergency medicine and, and, you know, where's everybody at then? So, so I kind of get some of it, but I, I wish there was more focus on, especially emergency medicine. It's kind of what I enjoy and what I've done. So, um, and I wish there was a bigger push to put emergency medicine a little higher in it in terms of, you know, teaching PAs. So a lot of them get out with a, a very family practice oriented and there's a lot of just kind of holes in, in, in their knowledge base, especially when it comes to emergent conditions. Got it. And Omar, what's your, what's your sense of the military's impact on current PA education? Again, to touch on what, what Dave said, you know, the, the PA education uh, model is, is, is primary care. Those students, you know, rotate through emergency medicine. I completely agree with Dave. Not enough emergency medicine, which is not the intent to teach them to necessarily go to work immediately in emergency medicine, especially a, a, a busy one. But they're producing more and, and more and more uh, PAs. Uh, there has been a little bit of development w- within the military in that, you know, Dave is one of the uh, graduates of the early postgraduate doctorate program that uh, the Army created for emergency medicine, which really le- leads the country in its academics. And, and I believe, Dave, they've, they've started or are starting an orthopedic uh, residency uh, mm. as well, uh, cool. trying to do that. So the military can produce this workforce, then transitioning it and applying it to the demands that are somewhat unique in the private workforce takes a little bit of tweaking, but you have a really good base model of an asset to go with. I I would say that Army PAs may have a little bit of leg up of, say, a brand new graduate out of the private sector uh, program has jumping into, into foreign waters or deep waters. And since a lot of PA grads are veterans, what, what would you say the hardest part that you've seen others go through trying to transition to? We, you've talked a little bit about your own experiences, but what, what are the hardest parts for others transitioning from the military to civilian PA work in the emergency department? So probably the two things that stand out the most is, is one, what I mentioned, what applies to me is, uh, they may not get a, a robust amount of experience with the older secure uh, population, with the young sick infants. But then secondly, the business of emergency medicine is something that doesn't exist in a closed governmental program in terms of revenue, profit margins. There's a different focus and a different perspective on uh, efficiency and productivity and, and, and those kinds of things. And there's also a third smaller thing, and, and that's, you know, the area of liability, uh, which doesn't exist uh, in the military. Yeah, I would agree with that. And, you know, a lot of guys that's transitioned from the military, especially if they've been a PA, uh, but even if they've only been a PA for a few years, but if they've been a PA for a while, um, they've taken care of a healthy population and medicine's constantly changing and being able to stay abreast of evidence-based medicine is difficult. And in emergency medicine, things are changing um, considerably. Just, you know, from the time I graduated till now, 2015 till now, has been a lot of change with new risk things that all come out. And and I think that's a huge jump from them. 
you're taking care of kind of family practice, young, otherwise healthy. You're used to seeing maybe some broken bones, and but it's a relatively young, healthy population. You're you're not really necessarily seeing a bunch of the emergent conditions that occur. Certainly not in you know kids under two. You're really not even seeing kids under seventeen, and so you you go a lot of years of not seeing that or seeing patients that are sixty five and older that have you know diabetes, hypertension, hyperlipidemia. You just don't have the skill set um, without relearning and learning kind of medicine over. It's a it's definitely a big jump I think coming from the military if you practice medicine for a bit. I will say the military is doing a little better with these additional programs to get people education, orthopedics. They also have one now in general surgery and then the emergency medicine one that I did, where once you graduate these programs, you work at least part time in an emergency room. The military has a lot of emergency rooms all across the country and you get an opportunity to work in some of these and work in the civilian hospitals around that to just keep up your skills and to just continue to learn those skills. And those programs, I think, set people up for success. It's the people that don't take advantage of those work five, six years in a clinic taking care of young people that really struggle when they're getting out, regardless of what they choose. So I'm going to ask a a potentially controversial question, which is, what do you think most emergency physicians who you work with in civilian life don't know or don't appreciate enough about PAs who've had military experience? So the, the two things that jump out to me is they may have l- very little appreciation as to some of the advanced skills uh, that uh, Army PAs can have. So, you know, as Dave said, you know, as an Army PA, you may spend a good chunk of your time practicing primary care in a clinic. But then there's the combat or combat support side where you're thrust off and you're the only medical provider for a bunch of soldiers, and you may be doing a lot of trauma-oriented uh, uh, medicine. So doing that, you, you have to learn uh, certain skills, and you have to do a lot of things that maybe a brand-new resident hasn't done as many of. So that, that's one thing is that they, they may be surprised to know just how many repetitions of a particular advanced skill some, uh, you know, the Army PAs can have. And the second thing that I think they might be surprised to learn is you know some PAs depending on what their duty assignment is can have just a very very valuable set of leadership experience of working in chaos directing large groups of people and learning how to meet objectives uh, with limited resources uh, that that's something that's thrust upon them Dave yeah I would agree with that especially the leadership portion you just never know when you're going to get a great leader and. And the military has a pretty good pull, at least on. Um, and I don't. I'm not so sure that leaders are are taught, but leaders in the military are. When you when you see one, you're just like, wow, look at this person. And and they often will foster them. They'll get in positions. They'll put them in other positions just because of those leadership skills. And so, somebody that's getting out of the military that potentially has leadership skills often get overlooked especially in the civilian world, because medicines, uh, and I hate to say it, that's probably another controversial thing, but, you know, it's, it's a doctor's world, and you know, doctors like to be in charge of doctors, and, and uh, I saw in aviation, we used to have this thing that we'd uh, always argue about um, with the engineers. You're like, ah, I designed the damn aircraft. I know more about it than anybody else. You know, I, I got a PhD. I, I know everything there is about the metals and the fluids and the way they dynamics and all this. You're, you went through 16 weeks of 
training, you know, they would, you know, argue and they're like, well, we need to be in charge. But sometimes you find these valuable people that may not have the education, but have some other skills, especially with leadership, bringing uh, people together. But every once in a while, just somebody who's worked in something a while will learn some valuable skills at doing things that, that it often go unrecognized just simply because you say, well, I don't think that they should do that. Or I don't know if they need to be in charge or I have something that they don't have. So I don't know if they need to be in charge of me per se. And I think that's one of the big factors that really kind of hurt PAs on the outside getting into the civilian world. Um, especially somebody like Omar, who's got amazing leadership skills. Um, had he had the right credentials or the right number of years of education, you know, his potential would have probably been a whole lot more in terms of leadership. But it kind of gets hurt when you when you have that. Um, I, I had a doc that used to tease all the time. He said, um, you know what PA stands for? It's pissant. He was a surgeon and, and he would say it as a jokingly. But he would say it, you know, in terms of, hey, you know, you can't be in charge in here because the OR is my world. We would always laugh and joke at him, you know, well, you know, for the most part, you really can't organize and get anybody to the bathroom. Uh, you know, he just, he just had no leadership skills and he was really brash and harsh. But in terms of the OR, he was great. You know, if I needed somebody to open up a belly, he was the perfect person for it. But, you know, being in charge of anything, oh, my gosh, that, that guy couldn't lead himself out of a room. I mean, it was it was horrible. Yeah, so I'd, I'd like to, we have a few minutes, a few minutes left. I'm curious with, with both of your perspectives, where do you think the veteran to PA community, where are things headed in the future? Do you think there's a bright future for, for veteran PAs, headwinds? Talk a little bit about where you think the future is headed. And Dave, you can get started. Well, I hope it looks good for them. I, I mean, I'd hate for somebody to spend a lot of years learning and doing something and then not have a job afterwards. I, I'm not sure at the current rate how things are going to go. It's it's good when we're at war because there's a bunch of money and so the opportunity to get some additional schools and funding and stuff to get out. But I, I kind of hope that, you know, some programs will, will open up to give somebody a, maybe a year transition into things so that they can learn to operate and, and be successful. Because I think if one PA is successful in doing something, then we all end up being successful. But if you get that one guy and you're like, oh my gosh, this guy's an idiot, then that kind of reflects on the, you know, on all of us. And so you want to see PAs as they transition, be successful so that when people look at us and, and see it's kind of a brand, hey, you know, you're, you're getting a good product when you get these guys, they're going to they're going to do something good for us. And, you know, I don't have to worry about, um, you know, knowledge gaps and that sort of thing. And Omar, what do you think the future holds for PAs who are veterans? So I would say in, in two domains, um, clinical uh, skills and knowledge and leadership, as I mentioned, and, and Dave expanded uh, the, you know, the army has expanded their specialized skill training in, you know, in terms of the emergency medicine uh, postgrad doctorate and now expanding to ortho and, gen and general surgery. So veterans coming out, there's a cohort of them that have uh, special skills that 10 years ago were very, very rare to, to be found. And these are skills that are in dire need right now in, in, in the private uh, sector. And, and then in leadership, again, uh, I think that medical executive committees will start to take notice and saying, you know what, 
We don't know everything there is to know about PAs, but you know who does? PAs. So maybe they could serve in key leadership positions like on medical executive committees or other sepsis committees or, or, or getting a hospital ready for JCO. And, and now to blend the two, the leadership and the skills, Dave's a perfect example of this. You, you can take an army PA has got leadership experience and special skills, clinical skills, and they can go to emergency departments and teach either brand new grads, junior experience PAs, mid-grade and say, we're going to start a program here where we're going to teach all the PAs uh, intubation, uh, central lines, and and other special skills to help alleviate the physicians and let them do on, to do only the things that they do. So that's an example of combining leadership with special skills and saying let's let's help address a need in the emergency department. The months and years ahead are going to demand a high amount of resiliency from any emergency medicine provider. Uh, we were already starting to chart a record-topping burnout rate before COVID. Then COVID happened, and now we're in our post-COVID area, and burnout rate it's, is at its all-time high. And part of the result, it's driving people out of their career, out of their profession. They probably still owe money on their student loans, and it's driving them out. And a small, a little bit of an advantage or added benefit uh, to, to some Army PAs is this resiliency piece, is being able to be thrust into a chaotic situation, being given limited resources, certainly not uh, what, what is needed uh, to do the optimal job, and to have constant change and, 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 and still survive and reinvigorate yourself and adjust to the changes and, and continue to, to try to achieve uh, success. I think that's something that Army PAs bring uh, to the fight in the private sector is that added bit of resiliency. And then the second and last thing that I was going to say is the, the question that's upon the entire EM workforce right now is where should EM PAs find themselves in the market? What role should they play? How, how are we going to help the, the workforce market? And for the many reasons we've already talked about on this podcast, uh, I think EMPAs as a whole have a lot uh, to bring uh, to to the market uh, uh, that's positive. Got it. That's great. And finally, I'd like to end the, the episode with one recommendation that each of you has for a book or a movie that the audience would would uh, would enjoy. And Dave, you can go first. I actually just saw a good movie um that's pretty good. I'd recommend it's actually a Korean war because a lot of people really don't know much about the Korean war, um, devotion. That's it. A good aviation movie too. Um, takes me back to my roots, but really good, uh, uh, movie on the Korean war, kind of the introduction of it. Okay, great. And Omar, what, uh, what book or movie would you recommend? Uh, yeah. So I have two, uh, Hacksaw Ridge. Uh, it's about a, a, a famous combat medic who's a conscientious objector and refused uh, to carry the weapon, uh, but uh, he wanted to serve. I, th- I think his line is, during World War II, while the world is intent on tearing itself apart, I'm going to try to do what I can to patch it up together. Uh, and, and then the second one would be uh, Fury. Uh, uh, it, it, it's, it's a movie oriented about, about tank and, and tank battle. Probably didn't get a, a lot of press. Gives people a little bit of an insight of what it's like uh, to live in a tank and... and live in a tank. 
for extended periods of time. Well, that's great. So Dave Omar, thanks so much for doing this. Oh yeah. Thank you uh, for letting me speak a little bit and uh, run off at the mouth. I'm pretty good at it. Leon, uh, thanks for having me as a guest on the podcast. Uh, it was uh, very enjoyable. And as uh, Dave said, it's always uh, a good opportunity for uh, old army horses to run off at the mouth and trade war stories. Thanks for listening to the Emergency Medicine Workforce Podcast. If you have feedback for us or just have some thoughts on this episode, connect with us on social media. We're at EM Workforce. And don't forget to subscribe now to this podcast on your favorite podcast app or at emergencymedicineworkforce.com. This podcast is edited and produced by EarFluence. I'm Leon Edelman, and if you're in the emergency medicine trenches, we appreciate all the meaningful work you do every day.